It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in those coordinates as well as ELMNTFM, and listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It is a pleasure to welcome our first guest to the show. Timitope Oriola is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Alberta, uh, also the vice president of Canadian Association of African Studies and joint editor and chief uh, of African Security and the co-director of uh, um, Terrorism and Extremism, a study group. So, uh, Timitope, uh, wel- welcome. Oh, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure, and you know we're we're here to discuss uh, the an article that uh, well that spurred the conversation that we're going to have out of the the conversation, um, and that is about uh, the police force that recently is is in the news a lot because of uh, situations, especially with the the killing uh, of George Floyd, which brought a lot of attention back to this this uh, this topic once more. Um, and specifically, the article you wrote is looking at how to, uh, how to look at, at police departments and how they can identify and oust those, uh, those killer cops, as it, it says in the article. Um, so, first of all, is this something you've been looking at for, for a while? Oh, absolutely, yes. Um, I and um, a couple of uh, colleagues began looking at this. Uh, as far back as late 2008 and early 2009. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this has been a long-running, long-standing uh, research program. Uh, and part of it was poured uh, initially by the death of Robert Zukansky, uh, a, Polish, uh, a Polish immigrant on the floor of the Vancouver mm-hmm. airport back right. in 2007. And we, we, we became concerned with um, the use of force by police, the kinds of appurtenances and paraphernalia um, of force options available to uh, police organizations and uh, the social consequences uh, of such tools. So, so this was the, the, the Zekansky moment was the period when mm. my colleagues and I became interested in what kinds of force options were in fact available to police officers, uh, their deployment of those uh, force options and the way um, those force options in turn shaped uh, perceptions of mm. the police and the conduct of policing. And what, uh, what did you find from those initial, uh, you know, from that initial research you started doing? Right. So uh, our findings um, indicated that there was a level of uh, competition going on in terms of adoption of, of, of tools of policing. Um, there was this sort of um, attempt to be like the Joneses when it came to uh, adopting force options. So the, the Victoria Police Department, for instance, was the very first um, uh, police unit in Canada, or police department in Canada, uh, to adopt um, a conducted energy weapon, um, specifically the taser. Uh, and so and we, we, we looked into how uh, that tool was marketed to police organizations and, and the symbolism of that tool, and, and uh, we found that it's some, somewhat quote unquote represented progress. And so, police organizations that adopted certain tools were viewed as progressive and modern and so forth, uh, regardless of the efficacy 
of those tools. And, and so we were, uh, we were interested in that aspect of things. Um, but overall, uh, we, we, we believe that there was a sense in which um, uh, the, uh, there wasn't a quite a, a deep appreciation for the, the dilemma that often faced uh, police uh, officers in the line of duty. Uh, and, and so uh, we began to look into uh, their training. We began to look into um, the, the kinds of split-second decisions that were being made and why uh, individuals, uh, individual police officers resorted to using specific kinds um, of, of force options. Mm. I don't think anyone would disagree that that being an officer um, anywhere, a uh, police officer, is a very demanding and, and a very dangerous job at times. And that uh, there is, uh, as pointed out in your, your article as well, um, we look to our police force for our protection, and, and it's a force that we should be able to trust. Um, so what, what then, as, after you started looking at these things, where did that information take you? What did you then decide to look at? What, what jumped out at you? Yeah, so what was um, immediately clear was that um, while force um, was necessary at, at, to a certain degree in, the, in, in policing, uh, excessive use of force, in fact, um, does make policing more dangerous. Uh, f- not just for um, members of the public, but for police officers themselves. Uh, and, and I imagine um, the, the, um, many of the listeners would have seen uh, several videos of protests around the world. We have seen instances uh, where members of the public were beating up police officers. Now, mm-hmm. that is what happens when that trust is broken. Uh, when there is no trust in the police, when there is no confidence in police, um, the, the police essentially be- become uh, men with guns. Mm-hmm. Um, and that must not be forgotten. A huge part of what they do is anchored on recognition by members of the public that they are there for them. Um, there, there's nothing intrinsically fundamental about the, 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 uh, the, the, uh, the insignia that they have on, um, the, the clothing mm. and so forth, the, mm. the legit intimacy undergirding that institution is fundamental. But when and if that legitimacy is lost, um, it, it does make things a lot more difficult for, for our officers. Um, but in, in terms of specifics um, of our findings, and, and, and this is articulated in that piece that you so kindly uh, referenced, um, uh, one of our findings uh, uh, shows that uh, the psychological screening um, that ought to be um, fundamental to um, who gets in and, and so forth uh, uh, isn't being taken as seriously as it should be. Uh, and we're not alone in mentioning this. Um, the Honorable Frank Iacobucci, a former Justice of the Supreme Court, was asked by the Toronto Police Service um, following uh, the death of Sami Yatim in the hands of an officer in, in Toronto in 2013 to look into uh, how the police could respond um, to people in, uh, in mental crisis. And one of his recommendations was precisely that, that there was a need um, for a much more robust uh, psychological screening. Uh, many of the officers who turn out to be killer cops 
are those with uh, major psychological problems. They tend to be impulsive. Um, they tend to uh, uh, be action-oriented. They tend to be narcissists. Uh, they tend to have a range of psychopathology. Uh, and therefore, um, all manner of cultural sensitivity, uh, workshops and diversity and so forth are not necessarily useful for such officers. The key variable is to ensure that such individuals never get in in the first place. And that when, they, when and if they do get in, which would presuppose uh, that uh, the checks in the system haven't worked as it should be, uh, there should be mechanisms of accountability to ensure that those individuals are promptly removed because they do make policing more difficult. Some of those traits that you just mentioned um, might serve someone, I would think, maybe again at specific times in the military. Uh, I could see how that would help in certain kind of situations, but but not necessarily in a, in a, in a in a, an organization that is there for public safety to protect people. Uh, especially as you pointed out, uh, if they're not if they don't have the 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 necessary skills in order to de-escalate a situation and and they are the ones that have all the all the uh, protective equipment whether it be tasers whether it be handguns uh, you know whatever else batons whatever else they need to protect themselves uh, they're the ones carrying all this stuff um, absolutely and and so they are already at an advantage uh, in in a situation where they do come up against someone. And I, I, again, I would imagine it's frightening for anyone to come up against someone that has uh, some some mental issues that is getting very excited, agitated, and seems threatening to to you in that situation, but not having the skills to know how to de-escalate that situation. Mm. Yeah, and, and I, I, I do believe it's, it's in fact unfair to our officers at a certain level mm. um, that they are being asked to deal with situations for which we have provided little to no training. Um, police officers are not nurses necessarily. Most of them at least aren't. Most of them are not mental health workers. Um, but increasingly, uh, up to 90% in some cases, uh, of, of calls that they receive uh, deal with mental health problems. Mm -hmm. and, and this is part of um, the, the conversation around reimagining and re-envisioning policing. Mm -hmm. um, and so the likelihood that you're going to be called into a situation where you need to draw your gun from your hostel and so forth is actually quite low. You could have a solid 30, 35-year career in the police, at least in Canada, without uh, ever having to draw you out your gun. Mm. Now, but much of the training that they receive, a period of roughly six months, uh, which again, I think is actually quite uh, little, it's almost insignificant, mm -hmm. uh, focuses on marksmanship right, and, yeah. shooting <laughs> and all that. Uh, again, it, it is misaligned with the realities of 21st century policing and the subtleties of engagement with the public uh, in an increasingly diverse world. Now, and this speaks to the need to uh, go out and get officers um, who have the, the verbal skills. And this is where education comes in. Mm -hmm. um, now, 
we do know, and the evidence is robust and incontrovertible, that the ranks of killer cops are populated by officers without a university degree. Now, uh, and why? Well, first of all, officers with uh, university degrees uh, tend to de-escalate more. They tend to have more verbal skills and therefore are much more likely uh, to engage suspects verbally. They are much more likely to request mental health support for suspects rather than make arrests. Mm. Again, that comes from the... Uh, the kinds of interactions they have had across uh, their educational careers. So being in a classroom, in a university environment with, with students from all over the world, uh, having group assignments with such students. And so questions such as, oh, you speak good English. Where are you from? Would become, oh, um, can you tell me more about your home country? You, you, you're exposed to a diverse uh, a constellation of individuals. That does something to the psyche. Now, but when you hire straight from high school, um, and we see, we've, we've seen that again quite recently um, on Friday night uh, in, in Atlanta, where mm. uh, the 27-year-old officer who was allegedly um, responsible for shooting Mr. Brooks um, mm -hmm. had been in service for seven years at age 27. Now, my guess is, and I haven't seen his record, and I wish to make that clear, but I would be stunned if he had more than a grade 12 level education. Mm. Now, that could have been sufficient a few decades ago, but grade 12 or less is no longer sufficient for policing these days. Mm. Um, now, if, if he were an individual with a four or five year university degree, that would have meant that at age 27, he would have been in service for maybe two or three years. Mm -hmm. now, but but when, you, when, you, when we bring in people so young and with little educational qualification, we are uh, at the risk of um, you know, sparking any kind of controversy, we are setting them up for failure. Mm. Because such individuals are excitable, um, they uh, get or feel easily disrespected, uh, and, and, right. and so they, they, they rely on muscles and bronze rather than uh, 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 intellectual engagement, verbal engagement with, with individuals. So, uh, so I think we, we need to do more in, in, in terms of the kinds of people that we bring in uh, to police service. And I'm happy to talk about the role of gender in all of this, if, if time permits. Timotopi Oriola, he's the Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Alberta. We're going to be right back here on Moment of Truth and Element FM right after this with more. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element, Element, Element FM. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in those coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M and then listen on your device of choice anywhere uh, you like and 24 hours a day and seven days a week. I'd like to just let you know that our guest uh, on Moment of Truth is Timitope Oriola, and he is an Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Alberta. Uh, we're talking about an article, or it was spurned by an article that we're having uh, on, the, on the show about uh, police, how police departments can identify and oust killer cops. If you want to see that, uh, go to the conversation online and you can check out the, the article. One of the things you also wrote in that article, uh, Timmy Tope, is, is uh, the, and I think you talked about gender equality and hiring more women and how that can affect uh, things. 
Yeah, ab absolutely. Um, so uh, the, the evidence is, is fairly robust and it does suggest that uh, in many jurisdictions across the United States and Canada, uh, killer cops are overwhelmingly men. Uh, in some jurisdictions, in fact, they are 100% men. Mm. Um, and this also applies to uh, situations in which uh, citizens didn't die but sustained major injuries or life-threatening injuries and so forth. Now, uh, our research, um, in, in I've, I've worked with uh, um, Nicole Neversin at Rassen University, I've worked with uh, Charles Adeonju at the University of Prince Edward Island. Our research indicates that women as um, a broad social category are less likely to support um, the use of force of any kind. And I know that's a broad generalization, but that's what the evidence suggests. Now, when you distill that, you find that in terms of um, the resort to force, whether or not force was necessary, women or female officers are less likely to use force. They are more likely to uh, engage in de-escalation techniques, uh, verbal interactions, and so forth. Uh, and when it comes to excessive use of force, it appears to be uh, for the most part, a male thing. Now, there are exceptions. Those exceptions are in situations where uh, a small number of women, a handful of women, work within a broader uh, police environment where uh, you have uh, mostly men in, in, in charge. So uh, say you are one of four or five women uh, in a police organization with 65, 75 officers. Where research shows that such women, in fact, become just as brutal as their male counterparts. So mm. it's not just um, gender or, or, or the facticity of femaleness in and of itself. It is in the number of women that you put in. Uh, now, uh, the goal, I believe, has to be gender parity, 50-50. Mm. But I suggest in that article that at the barest minimum, we should have... 40%. At when we're not doing all right in any way, right. we should have up to 40%. Uh, but the aim, uh, the broader goal, has to be 50%. Um, and I, and I, I hasten to add that this is not a favor that we do um, right. to potential female recruits. This is for society. The evidence suggests that women are, are not as likely to resort to using force and are less likely to, to shoot um, members of the public. Mm -hmm. The other thing you, you address is the idea of uh, ethno-racial diversity. Right. right. Now, um, if, so the, the, again, the data is uh, very clear on that, um, uh, suggesting that non-diverse uh, police organizations that uh, engage in policing activities in diverse environments uh, do not have the best of outcomes. Uh, and therefore, in cities like Toronto, in, in cities like uh, Montreal and, and around uh, the whole of the country, uh, when you have a much more diverse police uh, organization, then uh, you're likely to see a reduction in use of force. Part of it comes from the fact that, well, A, yeah, you have these colleagues from different backgrounds. Uh, that, that's, that does something to you. you so at, at, at a close range, you're able to interact with that officer from a Sikh background, mm. uh, from a Somali background, uh, from, from a Chinese uh, 
uh, or, or Korean background, and you learn more about about their culture and and, and all of that and mannerisms, mm. and that does something to you. Um, but but of course, across Canada today, um, the the reality is that policing re remains a, a white male occupation. Uh, I'm happy to report that that appears to be changing, but it's not changing uh, as fast as it should. Right. Uh, and, and efforts have to be intensified uh, because it serves as a check and balance uh, on, on uh, officers who are, who are in service, as you now have uh, colleagues from all walks of life. So, so this is an area that, that, that um, requires um, a, a lot more effort than we're currently uh, putting in. Couple of more things just before we we go that, that we should touch on well, accountability and then looking forward to what what should be done in order to get us back on the right track in, in with the police force. So account accountability. Hmm. Um, so um, one one example readily comes to mind, and that is the uh, Alberta serious incident response uh, uh, team. Uh, which was established uh, in, in my province, Alberta, back in 2008. Uh, now, that organization is responsible for uh, looking at evidence of um, a, a, a misconduct by officers in relation to interactions with uh, members of the public and, and, and filing charges even when necessary. Um, now, that organization, only a few days ago, and I mean as recently as last week, uh, filed its first set of charges against officers in nearly 12 years of existence. Mm. Mm. Uh, so, so that is precisely a, a way to lose public trust and confidence, given the number of uh, excessive use of force incidents that have happened in Alberta since that organization was established. And then, of course, you wonder how that organization has been measuring performance or result uh, in, in, in over one decade. Uh, now, I have proposed um, a two-tier policy. Um, uh, first of all, the, the idea of a kill-and-go policy. In other words, if an officer is involved in a shooting-death incident in which the uh, suspect was unarmed, or was found to be armed, but never deployed any weapons. Because uh, bearing firearms at, uh, under certain circumstances is actually allowed by law. And so and we, don't, we, we must not lose sight of that. So if they were not threatening the life of the officer and so forth, and somehow uh, got shot dead, I propose that such individuals should be let go from the force mm. and prosecuted to the full extent of law. And yes, should, should have every chance to state their case and defend themselves. So that's one part of that uh, uh, policy recommendation. This, the second part is a three strikes approach. Again, a term that I've borrowed from uh, a law that's, not, that's now been disused in California, which essentially in this case means that uh, each officer has uh, up to two sort of uh, quote unquote pardonable uh, uh, instances of use of force in which the citizen or as a citizen did not die uh, and did not you know, lose their life and, and all of that. But by the third count, such individuals should be let go from the service. Uh, and I've proposed that uh, the three counts uh, not be wiped off uh, in any way. Such that, that would mean that such individuals cannot find employment in policing. And mm -hmm. Uh, so so it, it becomes like a, a clock of some kind. And I say this mindful that there are currently no professionals in Canada, or at least not in uh, the 
in, in the uh, uh, geopolitical West that enjoy such latitude as the police currently do mm -hmm. relative to the authority and raw power right. that they have. You mm -hmm. cannot, for instance, the, the, the man who killed um, Judge Floyd in Minneapolis had 17 uh, complaints against the municipal, three of which involved um, you know, very serious and grievous harm to individuals. And I believe one, at the minimum, one of those resulted in death mm. of a civilian. So you're asking for trouble when you keep such officers in, in service and you are making life difficult for law-abiding officers who just right. want to find you. And right. if, if we're not yet out of time, I'll make a final point on that. And that is that we must not lose sight of the fact that policing is an excellent, rewarding uh, uh, occupation that leads to an incredible level of social respectability. Mm. There, there are very few occupations paying as much as policing does relative to qualification. So uh, the RCMP, for instance, states that fresh out of cadet school, officers make over uh, 50 grand. Within 36 months, the RCMP states that they can expect to make over $86,000. Mm. Rookie officers in Edmonton and Vancouver make over $70,000 a year. Wow. I know postdoctoral fellows with odd end PhDs in biomedical sciences conducting life saving research who make less than $50,000 a year. Hmm. My point is the public needs to get value for its money. Hmm. Let's recruit the right set of people. Let's give them the right training and let's have accountability, the type of accountability that we generally hold our, our elementary school teachers to, our high school teachers to. I could not retain my job if I abused my students. Mm. So why do police officers retain their jobs when they routinely uh, abuse civilians? So thank you. Good points. Um, the, the, the term professional officers, uh, is that in regard to, to officers that would graduate from university? Is that, you know, I saw that in there and I thought, hmm, is that, is that something deliberate in there? Would they become, you know, a new, a new title, professional officer kind of thing? So, so it's, it's a term that I've uh, created. And by that, I meant to distinguish between action-oriented mm. officers, the impulsive uh, psychopathological ones, uh, right. who more often than not abuse civilians, and those who uh, carry on their duties and view what they do as a job, a career, a respectable career, which policing is. Now, the premise of my argument, this is mostly, you know, philosophical more than anything else. The premise of my argument there is that uh, as a society, and for very understandable reasons, we tend to emphasize certain ideational elements of policing as this sacrificial, selfless, uh, community-oriented uh, uh, ori uh, um, occupation. Uh, we, we routinely thank our officers, or thank you for your service, and, and so on and so forth. And, and that is fine. Uh, but I am suggesting that we begin to uh, equally emphasize the professional elements of policing. In other words, where officers recognize that this is a career um, that, yes, ha has certain uh, uh, privileges unlike any other, but let's take it as a regular occupation, a regular career. Let us distill it from the uh, all sacrificial uh, 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 angle and focus on the fact that 
it is a wonderful career. Uh, police officers, at least in Canada and many parts of the U.S., are very well paid. We should hold them to the same standards that we hold professionals from other occupations, uh, the right training, the right mental uh, and sociological uh, 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 attitudes and so forth. So, so I've made that distinction only to say that um, <clears throat> professional uh, officers are individuals who uh, essentially do their jobs because uh, we, we consider policing, and it is in many ways a very dangerous, very risky occupation. Uh, this may or may not uh, surprise uh, listeners. Policing is, in fact, uh, not as dangerous as driving a taxi. Mm. Taxi drivers, long-haul truck drivers, uh, uh, coal miners, uh, and a few other uh, uh, workers experience higher risks and dangers than police. Mm. That is what the research shows. That's not my personal opinion. Right. That isn't, in fact, from my research agenda. That is from other people's research. That right. If you've ever taken a cab, that taxi driver is exposed to far greater risk than the average police officer on the street. Okay. Um, so, and so that has to be put into consideration. Well, that's uh, very nicely put, uh, Timmy Topi. We'll have to uh, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, but we really appreciate you taking the time to join us on the show, and uh, we uh, greatly appreciate the article and the information that you brought forward to share. Thank you very much. I, I appreciate you having me. Yeah, it's our pleasure. Timotopi Oriola, he's the Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Alberta, and it's been a pleasure having him on the show today. Don't go away, though, because we're going to be right back here on Moment of Truth and Element FM right after this with more. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto. Anywhere across the country, if you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in those coordinates, either one of those, plus E-L-M-N-T-F-M, and then listen on your device of choice, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show uh, Dr. Michelle Stewart. And she's uh, on the show uh, to talk about how to defund and reimagine policing. But before we get into that, uh, Dr. Michelle Stewart is an associate professor uh, in gender, religion, and uh, critical studies, associated facility of Department of Justice Studies, and academic director of Community Research Unit at the University of Regina. Uh, Dr. Michelle Stewart, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, David. It's our pleasure. And, you know, uh, certainly... Not only being stuck in the COVID-19 situation, but we we have also had such a, a, an increased focus on on the world and things that are happening and, and the injustice, especially, especially in the last few weeks where, where things have just uh, been broken wide open, uh, especially after the, the death of George Floyd, the, the very, very tragic death and unfortunate death of, of George, George Floyd at the hands of, of police in, in Minneapolis. Uh, and, and you have uh, you have written an article uh, up somewhat on this on how to defund and reimagine policing. Uh, I guess around these 
these ideas because there is a call for defunding and and uh, and and even uh, dismantling police services. But that brings into a whole lot of questions about what does that mean? Uh, what does it mean to to defund or or to disband the police? And and how would that how would that work? So. Um, how do we how do we start this conversation? Um, well, I think that uh, the conversation about defunding police, particular in particular, um, has been going on for quite some time. Mm. Um, every time that there's a police budget and people show up to city hall and you know raise questions about particular budget lines, um, every time people call into question. Uh, you know, police accountability, um, raising questions on policing resources, that's usually generally um, a discussion around um, critically engaging with police. Mm -hmm. And so when we think about defunding, often people, I think, misunderstand that to be a call to take away all the money from police. Mm -hmm. And rather, it's about looking at how police money is spent. And so, for example, where I'm calling in from Regina, Saskatchewan on Treaty 4 territory, um, we have police forces here that have tanks or quote unquote armored cars, mm -hmm. but effectively you have a police force that has a $350,000 tank to execute warrants and other such things. From the police perspective, they need a tank to do their work. From my perspective as a community member, as someone who does research on police practices, I say you don't need a tank. We need to demilitarize the police. And so that's one example of something where we can say, no, you shouldn't have a tank. And that was the case a couple of years ago. People raised concerns, um, you know, called for um, that tank to not be funded. That tank was eventually funded. Um, you know, we're looking at that move um, in a number of places across North America uh, to say either no to budget increases, to raise questions about whether or not the budgets need to be brought down or reimagined, which is what we're seeing, I believe, right now in Halifax. Um, but ultimately, defunding is looking at all those budget lines and saying, can our city spend money differently or at the federal level? Can we spend money differently than the way we're spending it on the RCMP? Hmm. And so defunding is usually taking bits and pieces of money away. Um, but for some, it's part of a broader conversation around reorganizing or even abolishing police as we know it. Yeah. Uh, when you raise the issue of the tank, for instance, it, mm -hmm. it does sort of lend one to wonder why would a police service require such uh, you know an arsenal of of that magnitude uh right. for policing uh, citizens um right. and uh, where where does that start how did that how did it ever come to be that uh, that police services needed to be militarized in that fashion well and i think that um you know it's a history um that we can trace back in some ways first to the united states and then into canada um, but we can trace this move towards this particular version of militarization um, back to the kind of roots of, of community policing in some ways. Um, you know, community policing was introduced in the United States um, in the 1980s as a concept around getting around the alienation that police forces felt like they had from their communities. It was responses to a number of high profile incidents that had happened prior um, it had relationships to, quote unquote, the race riots um, in the 1970s in the U.S. But either way, moving between the 1980s and the 1990s, two things happened, at least in the United States initially. The first was, how do we make the police um, have better relationships with the community? Mm. And then concurrently, by the time we hit the 1990s, we see this massive release of money um, and a focus on um, 
what's understood to be violent crime um, under a number of different senators' bills um, that uh, increased police forces by the tens of thousands um, and then also brought in arsenals. And since then, um, there's been different types of programs that have been brought into place that effectively decommission uh, military equipment and sell it um, you know, at a very small cost, ultimately to local police forces. In Canada, that story happens in different ways, but ultimately the same effect where we have um, an argument that police need bigger and better weapons for the type of policing they're doing. But then when you look at how these weapons are being used, um, you know, we can look at the, the militarization of the police force and look at particular responses to Indigenous resistance in this country at different times. Um, we can also look at the ways in which, um, you know, uh, warrants are being executed using um, very specific tactical responses. And so um, over the course of, you know, 20 to 30 years, um, many people have incidentally become accustomed to a police force that is quite militarized. Um, and, and that's been well documented across the United States and across Canada from college campuses in the United States that also have these types of weapons um, to smaller towns. And so once again, you know, what does that mean for the average person in Canada? It means look at the, look at the police budget. Um, it's accessible to you. Um, it's funded, you know, through your city if you have a municipal police force. You know, but really look at the types of weapons um, that the police force has if you're concerned about militarization. And if you're not so concerned about that, then ask questions about what other ways the police are involved in, in the life of your, yourself or your children mm. and whether or not that's how you want police dollars spent. For mm -hmm. example, do we want to continue funding police to be inside of our K-12 through schools? Yeah, and the reason, of course, they're there is, is are, are various programs that are, are are supposed to be, I guess, helping to educate and and get, I, I think, get the the kids familiar with police officers to officers to look at them as uh, as part of the community uh, and and uh, and and those kind of things like the Dare program, uh, right. but. Um, I guess there's a there's another side to that uh, that you point out in in the article you wrote about how that is sort of a it gives a sense of a, of a fast track into another another realm kind of for sure and you know people have written extensively about this again in you know in the United States and in Canada um, you know and and from my perspective there's a couple of different things to think about so first of all. For folks that are trying to imagine, like, what, what are we talking about? Um, we're thinking about here school liaison officer, officers, mm. school resource officers, or, you know, some, some sort of branding therein. Um, but these are police officers that uh, either part of or their entire duty is um, dedicated to them working inside of schools, K through 12 in particular. Um, we also have police on university campuses, but university campuses are usually populated by adults. When we're thinking about a K through 12 environment, um, agreed, I think that police forces would say, as you did, that this is an opportunity for police to, um, you know, put, you know, a personal touch um, on getting to know local youth. Um, and ideally, it gets rid of, you know, any confusion about what police do. Um, but what it presumes is that all of those children see police officers in the same way. And the experience of a white middle-class kid leaving school and seeing a police officer later is very different um, than individuals um, that experience racialized policing or forms of racialized policing. And so from my perspective, you know, there is um, something to be said for us to not have police officers with guns on campuses. Right. Um, but there's a whole number of, of children and youth um, that 
have their education um, negatively impacted by having police officers on their campuses. You know, and there's been a, quite a few um, recent newspaper articles about that, youth speaking out, um, you know, as visible minorities saying they don't want police on their campus, that it's intimidating. Mm. Um, you know, and I think at the end of the day, once again, instead of having the money spent um, with an armed police officer on campuses of K through 12 schools, why would we not invest that money in other initiatives that support youth and children? Um, and those are services that are delivered by community organizations or grassroots groups, not by police officers. There's, you know, for many people, there's a role for police officers and it's to investigate serious crimes and it's to do that type of specialized work. What I don't think we need is police officers on K through 12 campuses um, engaging with youth, um, you know, and police services will say that they're also there to gather intelligence when needed. You know, and that raises some pretty serious ethical questions when we're thinking about youth mm. and children who might not necessarily know what they're consenting to um, mm. when they just have an incidental conversation with a police officer. Mm. So there's some ethical questions there. Um, sure. And ultimately a question about resources again. I guess that that ties in with the, the comment about the, uh, the, 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 the uh, school to prison pipeline. Uh, yeah. that is raised and certainly yeah that 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 raises some very good points about that now if i'm not if i'm mistaken i, rem I know there's always been a call for uh, and i remember hearing this previously over the years about the idea of having more officers on the street walking the, the you know getting into their local communities so that people can mm -hmm. see them and meet them and those kind of things um but Going back to what you were just saying about uh, defunding and taking some of those dollars away from the police so that those those monies can be put towards uh, more services that that can help in in regard to some of the situations that we have seen uh, we have seen that police are engaged in that have not turned out well. We've seen some recently where you know a, a, a police officer goes to check on a wellness of someone. And there mm -hmm. ends up in a death. I mean, that that's, you know, it's crazy. Uh, how how does this happen? So, in regard to uh, that kind of of idea, uh, it certainly does suggest that it would make sense to have uh, that that training if they were. And I remember he hearing something else about somebody mentioning this the, about out west in in British Columbia. I think they were saying that. Um, either used to be or it is now where a an officer, I guess, that would be going out on something like that would always be paired with someone uh, in in a, uh, a line of work that it deals with, uh, with with those kind of situations and that is experienced to, to deal with those kind of situations so that they can de-escalate a situation instead of just having an officer who is not experienced and doesn't have that that expertise to know how to how to deal with it. Well, and there is a number of um, programs where, you know, at the at the end of the day, um, we're talking right now about defunding police. But what we've had in Canada is a massive defunding of the critical infrastructures that support people's mental health and wellness. Mm. And so that has fallen now onto police work, I say in quotes, mm. um, because there's so many individuals that need better supports in our community um, that they produce calls for service. And so in a number of locations, like you said, um, in the lower mainland in British Columbia, they pair um, kind of a mixture of, of either street nurses or um, social workers with police officers, and they have this integrated unit. Um, we have a, a, a type of unit like that in some ways in Regina, 
And this is kind of common in different um, areas um, across North America, these kind of integrated um, units where you have a specialized response because someone's having, um, you know, largely um, an issue surrounding mental health or wellness. Hmm. The issue I would say, though, if we go back one step, um, when you were saying that a lot of people are calling for more police, but kind of walking the beat, um, you know, or police officers are also referring to that as well. I think that there's also sort of a nostalgia around that, that there mm-hmm. used to be this time when police officers would walk the beat and they'd know everyone in the community and these officers would be assigned to a neighborhood or in a smaller town. They would walk around more and talk to people, you know, but here we are now um, in, in 2020 in a situation in which, um, you know, as you just alluded to, Ms. Moore and Mr. Levi, the most recent um, high-profile incidents have happened with the RCMP, um, one, you know, two of many. Um, you know, do people in, in these communities want to see more officers walking around on the street? Hmm. Not, not everyone. Um, I think that would make people feel very, very uncomfortable depending on how they identify their own relationship to policing. And so I think what we need actually is less money invested in more police officers on the street and more money invested in the social programs that really, you know, could, if, if, if there was a wellness check that was needed, a lot more could have happened if it was, uh, uh, you know, a frontline worker um, in the human services mm-hmm. sector, perhaps, mm-hmm. um, you know, more robust um, social service um, safety nets, not necessarily the Ministry of Social Services, but, you know, what we really think about when we when we need to take care of one another in our communities, um, you know, this would go a long way towards speaking to the broader needs that we have in, you know, in our communities. And at the end of the day, do we really want to put more police officers on the streets, you know, when the commissioner of the RCMP is still struggling to understand what systemic racism is, <laughs> you know, and ultimately this is what we're looking at um, in racialized policing practices is, is the role of systemic racism. And we need some accountability, you know, from the top cops in the RCMP to the smaller police office, um, you know, chiefs um, to recognize racism exists in Canada. Racism most definitely exists in your police force. And so when racism exists and one person has a weapon, we have a really big issue to address. And that isn't addressed by putting more police officers on the streets. It's addressed through different mechanisms of accountability and, um, you know, way more civilian oversight um, and and less police officers and less weapons and less militarization, I would say. Mm. You're listening to Moment of Truth on Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa and anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in 106.5 or 95.7 plus E-L-M-N-T-F-M and then listen on your device of choice uh, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week right across the country. Our guest is Dr. Michelle Stewart, and she is Associate Professor of Gender, Religion, and Critical Studies, Associated Faculty, Department of Justice Studies, and Academic Director at Community Research Unit at the University of Regina. It's a pleasure to have her on the show with us. And we're talking about defunding and reimagining policing. Um, specifically in Canada, and we were talking about some really interesting things. Now, um, uh, what would you say then, uh, Michelle, is the is the relationship we're looking for with the police? I think that's a challenging one to answer. Um, you know, speaking for myself, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I, I work on policing. Um, I'm involved in, you know, it's part of my research. It's part of what I do in the community. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, and so I, I get a lot of people's perspectives on policing. And so I have heard, especially over the last few weeks, individuals say, you know, that the role of police officers is to do that serious crime investigation. Mm. Other people say, well, who's who's going to write a traffic ticket? Um, you know, other individuals are worried about, you know, who's who's going to make sure that the children are safe. So there's a lot of different ideas about like where people absolutely believe policing should land. Mm. Um, you know, but if if we were able to have a, a bigger conversation about policing, um, you know, first our communities and then have that trickle up um, to the provincial federal levels, I think that there's a lot of different answers depending on who you speak to. And for individuals who have been um, experiencing the impacts of racialized policing um, over the course of their lives, and then who are now in a position where they have to explain that to their children, um, you know, who also present as visible minorities, um, the amount of triaging that goes into coaching a child to sort of present themselves correctly if they do have a police encounter for fear of what could happen. Um, you know, I think that there's a pretty serious conversation there about like what what is the value of the police officer mm. if they produce that much fear and that much potential for violence in our community. Mm. And so I don't know if we have one answer to the role of what is the police officer. Right. So from my perspective, instead, what I try to do is carve out and maybe offer where I wonder if there's no role for a police officer in that particular area. And so, you know, as we discussed earlier, um, I don't think there's any role in the militarization of the police force. And in fact, we should be taking away weapons. Um, mm. I don't think we need to have police officers in K through 12 settings. And further, I don't think we need to have police officers on university campuses. And we've seen that move happen twofold. Um, actually, if we go right back to, um, you know, the the loss of George Floyd, mm. um, you know, the the university there um, is planning on removing the police from campuses, and the school board is planning on removing police from mm -hmm. K through 12 settings. Mm -hmm. And as we also know. Um, the city council is talking about disbanding and restarting their police force. Mm -hmm. So it can be done. The things that seem unimaginable are being done. Mm -hmm. um, and so as people walk through those steps in the United States, we're seeing us walk through some of those similar steps in Canada, asking critical questions to police. Um, and instead of police assuming that the budget is there for the having, people are saying, we're going to ask some different questions about the budget and maybe you're not getting all of your budget this year. Right, and uh, that's I guess where uh, voters can come in, and uh, and just the general public can make their voices heard in in regard to that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you you had mentioned a little earlier that uh, there was the defunding of of the mental health and social services, and that was sort of thrown into the, the hands of police and, and, and were given the situation. Do you know if, if at the time when, when these, this defunding of those services was going on, that anyone voiced concern about what might happen in, in regard to this? Definitely. You know, and here I'm thinking, and I know it's like a, you know, a big um, word, but, you know, I'm thinking about neoliberal reform that we had, right? And neoliberal reform is those things that we had um, under, you know, this trilogy of leaders, we had Brian Mulroney, we mm. had Margaret Thatcher, and we had Ronald Reagan. Mm. And so under Mulroney in Canada, we just saw this massive reorganization of, of a number of supports and services. Um, you know, we saw the deinstitutionalization of particular mental health services um, without um, funding going into communities to receive individuals. Uh, we saw a number of structural reforms happen um, in ways that would impact individuals that were um, marginalized um, and low income. And so 
people definitely raised resistance at that time. Um, as we always see, there's always a voice of resistance, right? Hmm. Um, but what we had, though, was such a massive structural reform there in the 80s, late 70s into the 80s, um, that now we're in the ripple effect, right? So now, you know, in the early 2000s into, you know, into 2020, we have become accustomed um, to seeing police respond to a call for service for someone who most definitely um, needs supports and services as it relates to mental health or sometimes mental health and addictions. So the subject matter expert, um, the person that would have been the street nurse, the person that would have been the trained social worker, the individual that would have been a frontline worker in the human services sector who is familiar with issues around mental health or mental health and addictions is not necessarily the person that responds, but rather the first person that's called our police and police respond to these matters. Hmm. And as you said, of course, we have these integrated units where police are working, um, you know, across disciplines or across sectors. Um, but these are these are not the responses we need. Um, you know, depending on where you live, um, we're seeing not only an opioids crisis. Um, depending on where you live, we're seeing a methamphetamines crisis. Uh, depending on where you live, we're seeing a number of crises as they relate to. Um, you know, structural inequality and, um, you know, the outcomes and social determinants of health of poverty and systemic racism. This is not police work. This is community work. Um, this is work that's best done um, by community agencies, delivering supports and services to individuals, getting to know them, helping, um, helping them, you know, manage systems. But if we start to put mon more money back into our communities directly and not into policing, we're going to see the fruits of that much more so mm. supporting children making sure that there's great food programs before school after school um, during school so that kids have food when they're learning um, that there's mm -hmm. programs for kids on the weekends and after school when their parents are at work um, and when the kids are trying to do things that are that are social outside of school all that is money well spent and it's money that doesn't need to be delivered by police officers it does it's programming that doesn't need to be delivered by police officers so we, we always see resistance when there's defunding happening across the sectors. There's defunding happening in the educational sector right now. There's resistance. Now we wait for the ripple effect of those choices, you know, in the years and decades to come. As mm. soon as we defund a sector, there's an issue. Mm. Here, when we're talking about defunding police, we're talking about, from my perspective, less militarization and less police officers in schools. And we can reinvest that money into our communities. And that's a win-win. We had another uh, guest on that was talking about a similar uh, idea of of police, uh, but they were they were focusing more on the idea of of uh, internally with the police services and, and what could be done, such as per perhaps uh, looking at not hiring officers right out of school, uh, high school, uh, making sure that they are are university educated, for instance, um, mm -hmm. and uh, you know and those kind of things that. Uh, that can help uh, because these these jobs are well-paying jobs right um yeah and, and i think that you know people have um said you know whether they're responding to the article i wrote or responding to other things in the world that you know that this is just a case of a couple of bad apples and that there just needs to be better recruitment strategies and better training and retraining when needed and i would say We've we've far surpassed the conversation of a few bad apples um, when we're talking about issues of policing um, in Canada or in the United States. Um, you know, I I come from a university where we have a police college on campus. Um, police officers can you know take three years of university 
and finish their final year at the police college. And so they do graduate with a, mm. with a BA. So they do graduate with a degree, mm. um, you know, and, you know, we, you know, in the decades prior, you, you know, you just needed high school um, or you could get a GED and still be a police officer. Mm. I don't think that issues of, um, you know, systemic racism um, are addressed by someone having a degree. You mm. can have a degree and still be racist. Of course. And so um, I think that that sometimes negates, um, you know, the, the reality that we're living with. Because when people say, well, as long as officers have a, you know, have a BA, um, I think they think that they've been trained in critical thinking and therefore mm. they would have unlearned, um, you know, any sort of, of racism and, and a whole host of other isms. They, mm. But there's an assumption that they unlearn that by going to university. Mm. And that's not necessarily the case. And I think it's a dangerous argument to make. Mm -hmm. um, ultimately, when we're thinking about things that need to change from within the police force, um, I don't think the issues we're talking about today are addressed from within. But what we definitely need in Canada is better accountability and more civilian oversight. Um, you know, full stop. All right. And and that doesn't come um, through police investigating themselves. And it doesn't come um, from short-sighted leadership, um, as we're seeing right now, with a number of police forces, right? Police forces need to recognize systemic racism exists in Canada. It exists in their police force. It's not simply unlearned if they hire officers um, out of the university. Um, but I do think what we need is, is, is a really serious conversation um and a reckoning with um you know the histories of settler colonialism um and its ongoing impact whether we're talking about policing education or a whole host of other sectors right uh, very nicely said uh, uh, dr michelle stewart we're going to have to leave it there but it's been a pleasure having you on the show and i certainly look forward to uh, continuing our conversation perhaps at a later date it would be great to have you back on I would love to talk to you again. Thanks so much for covering the story, David. You bet. Thank you so much. That is Dr. Michelle Stewart, Associate Professor of Gender, Religion, and Critical Studies, Associated Facility of the Department of Justice Studies, Academic Director, and Community Research Unit at the University of Regina. Pleasure to have her on the show. And uh, that is our show for today. But uh, please make sure to tune in again tomorrow right here on Element FM and Moment of Truth. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.